Okay, we're in First uh, Samuel. Um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna overview about ten chapters this morning, and don't let that get you too nervous. Um, but we will be looking at some um, some verses o- over the span of those, not all, uh, and probably not many. But if you if you turn to the beginning of First Samuel, um, <clears throat> we'll probably look at some verses in eight through chapter fifteen. So just if you're in that area, you'll be able to <coughs> you'll be able to turn to those passages. So we've been um, we've been leading up into now the life of David, and um, the story of David really starts a uh, hundred years before he's born, because God already knew what He was going to do. Um, Jesus Christ was the son of David long before David was born in the mind of God. So God, David wasn't just, you know, someone that God just picked randomly and all of a sudden Jesus became like that he would be the son of David. This was God's intention from the very beginning. But it was a hundred years before he was born that, that all the things leading up to David were set up and, and put into place and into motion. And so we've been looking at that because uh, it, it's important to understand, especially in the context of our own lives, to see how involved God is with each of us. You know, that our, our lives aren't just an accident where he just finds us on the side of the road and just starts doing something. He knew you before the foundation of the world and uh, was preparing the groundwork way in advance for, for who you'd be, what, what he would do in your life, uh, where you'd end up. All of those things were um, so, so planned out in the mind of God ahead of time. And so, uh, so we see as God prepares Israel for the kingdom uh, under David, he's got three things that he's setting up. Number one is Samuel. He wanted a prophet uh, because the nation needed an anchor. There needed to be some uh, spiritual uh, root that was sound, so that during the time of transition, um, there would be a voice, that God would have a presence and a light. And uh, Samuel would be called the lamp of Israel later on when he would pass away. You know, so, so God needed that, that to be there. Not a king, not, not the one who would be, but he needed the spiritual presence. He needed a prophet. And so God uh, raised up Samuel to be in, in the place during the time of transition. Uh, the next thing that God needed was he needed the old system to pass away, the old order of things. And we saw that last week. We saw uh, that Eli, who was the, the 98-year-old uh, blind, overweight, idle priest, a representation of the system, that he needed to die. And this, the head was separated from the neck as he fell off the stool. And uh, his sons were killed and the, the ark departed. The glory of God departed. And it was the, the official mark of the end of an era that God put to death a system um, because he was going to raise up a new one. And, uh, and where, that's where we left off. And where we now pick up is the third thing that God needed to do prior to even David being born. David not even born yet uh, at this point. But God needs a kingmaker. He needs an instrument. He needs a tool that he's going to use to forge and fashion the heart of a king that will rightly represent him. And uh, that tool is in the form of a man, a man by the name of Saul, who would carry the title of, of Israel's first king, would be far from a king um, by any stretch. A king maker in every stretch, but uh, far, far from being a king maker. And so um, God needs a king maker, and he's going to do that through this time. And it covers these chapters, chapters uh, 5, really up all the way through chapter 15, when God then turns his attention to David. And so uh, Saul would reign for 40 years. And it wouldn't be until somewhere in the middle of that span that David would even be born. So Saul was already the king before David was even born. And yet God already knowing uh, how he was going to work all these things together to, um, to, to work in David's life. And so in chapters 5 through 7, and there's really n- nothing there that we'll look at, but just so that you know what's taking place in those um, chapters, uh, it really tracks the presence of the ark so at the end of the, the, the chapter 4, where we finished last time, the ark was taken by the Philistines. It represented the very presence of God. And so for those three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, it just kind of tracks the, the places where the ark went and what happened. And, um, and, and you know, uh, a little bit of what happened during the reign of Samuel. And by the time we come to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, uh, the chapter begins... By telling us about Samuel's sons. Look at chapter 8 and just look at the first um, three verses of 1 Samuel chapter 8. 
It says that it came to pass that when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. And so uh, well into now the life of Samuel, and he appoints his sons to be kind of like those that would, would, he would hand the baton to afterwards. And it says, now the name of his firstborn was Joel, or Yoel, and the name of his second was Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba, which was way in the south. And it says that his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. And so we're told that these, these sons of Samuel were far from having the heart of their father. Samuel very much had a heart after God, but his sons, it tells us, had a heart after money. That their, their desire, their aim, and their affection was to enrich themselves. And so, being that they wanted money, they were quick to turn aside to take bribes. And so if something could be bought in their favor, then they were happy to uh, accommodate the request at a sum for a price. And that was the kind of men that they were. So they perverted judgment. They, they, they made things crooked. Now, the reason why that's important for the story is because when the people of Israel realized what they were getting in the sons of Samuel, they were fed up. They had already seen the corruption that came from Eli and his sons. And now finally Samuel, someone who was righteous, was on the scene. And they had seen this, this, this uh, roller coaster of up and down righteousness and then perversion. They'd seen it and they'd had enough. And so what the people do in the rest of chapter 8 now is that they come to Samuel, the people of Israel, as a collective whole in one voice. And they say, please do us a favor. Make us a king. Ordain a king to be over us because we're tired of this. We want to be stable. We're tired of going up and down. And so we see that, that in other nations and other uh, regions, they don't have this problem that we have. There's a monarch and there's some stability that comes with that monarchy. And so please, if you're willing, Samuel, make a king over us. And when Samuel first heard that, he was grieved because uh, he, he realized that if the people were going to look to a king... And if they wanted to be like the other nations, then that meant that their heart wasn't after God and after his will for them. And so Samuel prays and he says, God, these people want a king. And what, 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 this isn't right. And God looks back at Samuel and he says, Samuel, listen, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me. But listen to their voice and give them a king. But warn them. That once they have a king, this is what life's going to look like. And he paints the picture for them of what it will like. There's going to be taxes. There's going to be uh, a military. There's going to be a draft. Your sons and daughters are going to be taken. The, the, the chief of your sons, the strength of your people are going to be in government because the government is going to understand that that's the way it's going to be. And then second of all, it's never going to change. You can't change back. You can't go through this for a little while, have a king for a couple of years and decide you don't like it, and then switch back. Once there's a monarch, there's going to be a monarch. And, you know, that's just the way it is in life because once you give someone power, they ain't giving it back, <laughs> you know. And so basically uh, that's what God says, warn the people. And so Samuel brings that message back to the people, and he says, this is the way that it's going to be. Are you sure this is what you want? And the people say, yes, this is what we want. And then he says, well, then understand, you're going to regret this decision. Now, the, the ironic thing is that it was God's intention all along to give them a king. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 17, verses 14 and 15, God actually told the people that he was going to give them a king. And then God gave instructions for when that king would come. And so it was God's will. He knew he was going to do it all along. The, the issue was that this wasn't quite God's timing in things. God was going to do it, but the people wanted it done now. And God uh, lets it happen. And we'll come back to that at the very end of our study, this whole idea of I want it now. You know, uh, but leaving that insufficient for now, that's what took place uh, in chapter 8. When we come, um, get into chapter 9, that's when we begin to uh, see King Saul. We begin to understand the man. And the Bible begins to reveal to us the character of Saul. And that's really what we want to look at this morning. Because uh, th that's important to the whole story. And it applies to you and I so much that you have no idea 
how important it is to look at this man, King Saul, and understand what the Bible has to say. And it's a very important study, especially for men. This, this man has more to teach men about being a man and being a spiritual man than maybe any other uh, character in the Bible, aside, of course, from Jesus himself, you know, because of the things that are in him. And so we're introduced in chapter 9 to the kingmaker. And the first thing that we notice about this kingmaker is that by all outward appearances, what you can see in the man, he is every ounce a king. If you look at chapter 9... It tells us, uh, first of all, of his heritage. It tells us there, look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of whoever that is, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, and it says, a mighty man of power. And so when it says a mighty man of power, uh, what it's talking about here is that the, these are powerful people. That is, that they have a place of prominence or authority within the tribe of Benjamin. So they're, they're heads of state, if you would. They're of govern, government or governor stature. And so this man, uh, Kish, and it says that he had a son, verse 2, whose name was Saul. And it tells us concerning Saul, it says that he was a choice young man and goodly. So that is that if you were to compare him with everyone else that was his contemporary, he excelled in every way and he was good looking. <laughs> and so he had, he had everything that you would want um, in a human representative. Don't you love those people that are just better than you at everything and they're better looking than you? <laughs> you know, And everybody knows it and they know it. And it says that there was not among the children of Israel so not just in the tribe of Benjamin, but among the whole nation, there was no one else like Saul, a goodlier person than he. And it says, from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. And I believe that, that, that the inference there is not only that he was tall, which is the obvious uh, and certainly true, but probably um, it's a reference to his intelligence as well, is that, you know, from his shoulders and upward, his, he had a good head in the sense of that he was, he was sharp. You don't be a king, you don't, you don't rule, and you don't even hold on to a rule for 40 years unless you have a certain amount of, of uh, um, substance between your ears. You know? And uh, he didn't have a whole lot of substance between his shoulders and the heart. We'll find that. But he had a ton between the ears, and he was very sharp. And so we see this man in everything that you would observe outwardly. And understand that. It's outwardly in this man saw screams king. Now, if you take all of the qualities that are listed here concerning Saul, this man Saul who was chosen to be the king, in the eyes of men, he's an A+. But in the eyes of God, all of these qualities are a net zero. God needs none of these things. He doesn't need good uh, heritage. He doesn't need good intelligence. He doesn't need good looks. He doesn't need popularity or influence. God needs none of that. It's worthless to him. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, let not the strong man glory in his strength, nor let the wise man glory in his wisdom. But let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. God, all he needs is a heart that is consecrated and devoted to him. And God can do anything with that. Anything beyond what any man could ever do. Two can put to flight 10,000 if God has a hold of the life. But if you don't have that, then you could have every advantage that, that you can have in the kingdoms of men, and, it, and it's nothing to God. The Bible says that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to the Lord oftentimes, that he doesn't need it. And so Saul has all of these outward qualities but he, and so in the eyes of men, he is every ounce a king, but in the eyes of God, he is altogether um, less than that. The rest of the chapter, chapter 9, um, basically highlights for us how Saul came into contact with Samuel. 
Samuel was the one that was to appoint the king. And so somehow God had to get this man from Benjamin in contact with Samuel, who is down in Ephraim, totally different region of the country. And so the, the chapter just highlights how that happened. And it was a, a, a divine you know, circumstance that, that, that caused Saul to come that day. Um, when Saul came to the place where Samuel was, Samuel was already expecting him because God had said, I'm going to show you tomorrow the man who's going to be the king. Um, and when Saul showed up, God said to Samuel, there he is. That's the man. And so there was a feast. Saul was invited to the feast. He was given the best seat in the feast and had no idea why. He's given the best piece of meat. He's honored amongst the people. And then when they leave the feast, Samuel says, come here, I want to talk to you for a minute. And they go for a walk alone. Samuel sends the servant ahead, and it's just Samuel and Saul. And when you get to the beginning of chapter 10, look at chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, finally, the purpose is revealed to Saul. It says there that then Samuel took a vial of oil, oil representing the anointing and the call of God, and he poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, is it not because, so finally, why all this? Why, why all this? Is it not because the Lord has anointed you to be the captain over his inheritance? So Saul is told that he is the king here at this point in the story, right at the very beginning. And, and I want you to understand that this is probably one of the most detrimental things that can happen to a man, is what happens to King Saul right here, is that he goes from nothing to everything in a moment with no preparation at all whatsoever. He left his father's house a few days ago as a shepherd looking for some sheep you know, that, that his father lost, and now he comes home a few days later a king over the entire nation. You can imagine the elevation, you know, to go from one extreme to the other in that kind of a time frame with absolutely no preparation at all whatsoever. An interesting thing, just getting ahead a little bit, when Samuel is sent to David, he anoints David with oil in the same exact manner, but he does not tell him why. I think Samuel might have learned something from this. <laughs> he basically, he, you know, and it doesn't say that he doesn't tell him. He just doesn't tell him. You know, he doesn't tell him why. And I believe David went home that way, that day, not knowing what just happened or why. And it would be a long time before David would put a crown on his head. A long time, like 15 years after that, you know, what a difference, you know, but uh, he's, he's um, told that he's going to be the king right at the beginning there of chapter 10. He's anointed by Saul. Then in, in verses 2 through 16 of chapter 10, um, he's given some instructions by Samuel. Samuel just says, you're going to leave here. You're going to see a couple of men. They're going to be carrying some sheep. They're going to be going here. Then this one's going to say this to you. He's going to give this into your hand. Once you get where you're going, you're going to do this. And he just gives them a whole bunch of, of, of little instructions that serve really as signs that this is legit. And then he gives him one final word of instruction. Pay attention. He says, when you come to Gilgal, you're going to wait for me. And you're going to wait seven days. And when I come... I'm going to offer some burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Go. Now, six out of seven of those instructions happen the same day. The men, the bread, the offering, all that. The last of those instructions didn't happen for two years. And that's important. Because he was given those instructions, and one of those things wouldn't come to pass for two full years after the instruction was given. And it'll, it'll come back around uh, a little bit later on in the story. So Samuel gives those instructions. And then at the end of chapter 10, Saul is presented to the nation. And, and it's told to the nation at that time that Saul is God's choice uh, as the king um, there. And, and it's so dangerous because what this is, and listen carefully, men, is that this is a crown without a cross. Samuel, Saul is given a crown without a cross, and it's one of the most dangerous things that can happen in the life of any man, uh, but God lets it happen to this man, Saul. So we see what happened to him uh, in chapter 10. In chapter 11, and this is where it starts to get good, now 
We've already seen an outward picture of Saul, what he looks like, where he comes from. In chapter 11, we begin to get an inward glimpse of what Saul was like. Who was the man? Who is Saul? Who is this kingmaker king that God has now ordained? Alan Redpath, I believe it was Alan Redpath, said these words. He said, before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. That before God can use a man greatly, he must first wound him deeply. And the, and the point that he was making in that, and, and the principle behind it, is that we all come into this world crooked. We all come affected by sin. We all come full of the flesh. We're selfish by nature. And, and in order for us to rightly represent God and be used of him, that crooked nature has to be put to death. And the, the life of Christ has to be formed in us. And that's a process that hurts. That's not an easy thing that just happens. God switches a light switch and we're just changed. And all of a sudden we aren't sinful anymore. Like there's a process in all of that. And if God's going to use our lives effectively for the good, then all of those old things have to be burned out of us and the new things have to be placed inside. And if they aren't, then that's dangerous. So before God can use a man greatly, he must be wounded deeply. Now, what I want to say to you this morning is that that's false. That's not true. It's not true that before God can use a man greatly, he has to wound him deeply. However, how you are used of God is the difference. If God doesn't wound a man, then he will still be used, but he will be used as a king maker and not a king. Here's the point, is that you will either go through the furnace in God's preparation of your heart, or you will be the furnace in someone else's life because of the iniquity and the crookedness of your nature. God will still use you, but he'll use you as an example of what not to be instead of an example of what to be. One has honor attached to it, and the other absolutely has dishonor. And what we see in this man Saul's, we begin to see what's inside of the man, is that he's a kingmaker. He is not a king, not on the inside. God uses him. But what he does is he's going to use him to shape David into who David is supposed to be, an example of what not to do. And so uh, the characteristics of a kingmaker in this chapter, and let me just tell you a secret here uh, before we look at some of these. You don't need any special preparation to become these things. You already are these things by nature. So am I. And so was Saul. So what was he? Notice in verse 5 of chapter 11. In verse 5 of chapter 11, it says that, behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, what ails the people that they weep? And they told the tidings of the men of Jabesh. Okay, so the background to this is that now Saul uh, goes home because there's no palace yet. It's not like he's a king and now he's got a palace. There was no palace. You know, there, there had been no kingdom. So he goes home, and while he's home, there's an attack and a battle begins. And so it tells us that when the men come now to tell Saul that a battle has begun, he's found driving the cattle. And I want you to notice that because there, there's a world of difference between a leader of sheep and a driver of cattle. A shepherd leads and he leads by example, but a cattle driver drives by force. And that's the kind of man this man Saul is. He's not a shepherd at heart, leading, but rather he's a driver, a cattle driver. And as he is with his livestock, so he will be with his people. Notice as it goes on. It tells us that he's a cattle driver. Um, there in verse 6, notice what it says. It says, And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. Now, there's a paradox in that verse. Because when you read about the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22, do you ever read the word anger listed among those things? No. But if you read Galatians 5.20, that talks about the works of the flesh, the word anger shows up in three various forms. Wrath, anger, clamor, right? 
So what this is telling us is that this man has yet to have the flesh burned out of him. And so he's filled with this energy from God, but that energy ignites his flesh. And that's the way he's going to lead. Notice, it says that he took a yoke of oxen. Now this is productive. And he hewed them in pieces. You ever met somebody like that? I mean, here you, it's like taking a John Deere tractor, right? And you have a shotgun in your hand. And you, you just get angry because you hear some news. And you just take a shotgun and you just blow that thing to pieces. You just pop the tires. And you put a couple rounds into the engine. And you break off the steering wheel and just cut the hoses and let all the hydraulic fluid run out. You know, you'd be like, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> you know, why are you doing that? It's, he's got no control over himself at all. He's just uh, a ball of emotions. And so he hewed the oxen in pieces, and then he sent them throughout the coast of Israel by the hands of the messengers. So he calls FedEx, and he puts one of the tires of the tractor in one package, and you know, the, 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 you know the, and he starts sending these things throughout Israel, and there's a little greeting card attached that has a bow and a nice piece of candy attached to it. And here's what it says. Whosoever comes not forth after Saul and after Samuel so shall it be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent. So he says, you, want, you, you like your tractor? You know, then you better come to battle, or else I'm going to do to you in your tractor what I did to my tractor. And, and notice by whose authority he does these things. He does it by his own authority, and he does it by Samuel's authority. He's name-dropping. He doesn't have his own. He's not confident in the call of God upon his life. And so he's using Samuel's authority. Doesn't even call them to account before God. It's, it's all human. That by, by the name of Saul and the name of Samuel. And here's the worst part of this whole uh, ordeal is that it worked. It says that the fear of the Lord came upon the people and they all came out with one consent after Saul. And so what you have here in this man Saul is that you see him uh, ruling by the instinct of his flesh and you see him uh, also ruling by the soldier's sword and not by the shepherd's staff. He's using threats and fear and he didn't win the allegiance of the people. He demanded the allegiance of the people. And it's a completely different type of rulership that we see in this than we would see in our Lord, or even in David it will be. And so uh, he uses fear, and God let it work in this whole thing. And, and he found his strength in now in his success and not in his calling. Now, if you read the rest of the chapter, they win the battle. And that's, a bit, that's too bad. You almost wish that they lost it, and that, that it would cause Saul to just come back and say, what happened here? And God could say, oh, good, let's talk, son. <laughs> First of all, why did you ruin that tractor? <laughs> you know, second of all, why did you let your emotions get, get stirred in? This was from me and not from you. There's no need for you to get emotional. Third of all, why are you threatening my people? I'm not calling you to be the king to be a threat over their lives. I'm calling you to be a blessing in their lives, to help them in their lives. None of that happened. Why? Because he won. The, the ends justify the means. We were successful in this battle. Why would I do anything any different? Our successes can sometimes be our greatest enemies. Sometimes failure is a grace because it causes us to bring that failure to God and say, God, what's going on here? And then we reassess and we learn from it. It doesn't happen with Saul. He's leading by the arm of his flesh. And so because of this victory, the people make him uh, the king now. They anoint him. They finally give him the crown. They agree to follow him. And then in chapter 12... Um, we have Samuel's last testimony and prophecy to the people. In chapter 13, and turn there, turn to chapter 13. Now Saul the man begins to fall apart. The wheels start to come off of his own tractor, uh, so to speak, or of his own life uh, here. Look at what it says at the beginning of chapter 13. It says that Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned Two years over Israel. So it doesn't take long. <laughs> uh, he, he did okay for a year. But then when, when the second year rolled through, it says in verse 2 that Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan. Jonathan was Saul's son. 
in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And so they're, they're still technically at wartime. There's a battle ongoing between the Philistines and themselves. And he sends everybody home, but he keeps 2,000 soldiers with him, and he gives 1,000 to his son Jonathan. And it tells us in verse 3, here's what happens. It says that Jonathan, now, his son, only has 1,000 men, smote the garrison of the Philistines. So he takes out a whole battalion of the enemy uh, that were in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And notice this. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel was also had an abomination with the Philistines. And then the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Do you see what happened there? Jonathan smote the garrison. Saul blew the trumpet and let it be heard that Saul smote the garrison of the Philistines. Another characteristic of this kingmaker is that he can't afford to let someone else get the credit for something that they did. He can't afford to give honor where honor is due. It all has to go to me. I'm the king. And so everybody's going to see that I did it. I've got to keep the people banded to myself and not let any attention go to anyone else. That's the way this man saw was He began uh, to become threatened by other people's talents, even if that talent was in his own son uh, in, in the whole thing, and he keeps, it, um, keeps the glory close to home. Now, here's the amazing thing, is that if you read on, you read verses 5 through 7, you read that the battle then didn't go so well. Be careful what you want to take credit for. <laughs> because sometimes, uh, you know, it'll come back and bite you in the end you know so things don't go so well the philistines are a little bit stronger than israel at this point and 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 saul and all the israelites kind of run and they they kind of are put on the defense in this whole thing and now interesting thing happens saul finds himself having to wait in gilgal for samuel remember the instructions that were given to saul when he was first anointed he said wait seven days for me in Gilgal. And so Saul's in Gilgal, and he's waiting for Samuel to come to find out what to do next. And one day passes, no Samuel. Two days, three days, four days, six days, still no Samuel. And Saul is getting impatient. And the people are getting impatient. And they're saying, what gives, king? What are we going to do here? And Saul's going, I don't know. <laughs> I've never been to West Point. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do. I need Samuel to come, but Samuel's not coming. So what are we going to do, king? And so the seventh day comes, and on the seventh day, still no Samuel. And so Saul intrudes into an office that was not his. He was not a priest. He was not authorized, even as the king, to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices. But because there was no Samuel, he takes it upon himself, and he disobeys the instruction of Samuel, which was the instruction of God, and he offers the burnt offerings and the peace offerings before Samuel gets there. Saul was very much a man who lived by the philosophy of ready, fire, aim. <laughs> that was the way, the way that he did things. Like, well, what do I do now? I can't think of it. Well, whatever comes to mind, just do it and we'll figure it out later. That's what he did. And as soon as he had finished offering those burnt offerings, guess who comes around the corner? Samuel. And Samuel comes and says, what, 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 what is this that I see here? And Saul says, well, you know, you weren't here and, you know, I needed to know what to do and the people and I forced myself. I didn't want to, but I forced myself to, to do this, even though I was so resistant to. And Samuel looked at Saul and he says, you have done foolishly. You should have obeyed. You should have waited. And he said, because of this, just this one thing, because of this, you're going to lose your place. You are not obedient. Your heart is not in the right place before God. And way at the beginning of Saul's reign as king, he's going to reign for 38 more years. But way at the beginning, Samuel prophesies, and he says, you are not the one. You'll be a kingmaker, but you are not the king. And God, at this point, um, 
takes his hand off of Saul as king. And notice what it says at the end of chapter uh, 13, verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. Notice this. Samuel to Saul, he says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. Now, amazingly, David's not even born yet. David has not even been born yet at this time. And yet God already had his hand on David's life before, before it even uh, happened at all. And so uh, verse 47, actually that's the wrong, uh, wrong chapter. But chapter 14 now, um, we see that Saul continues and, and we see another characteristic of, of a kingmaker is that he's a man of prayerless decisions. And you just read that chapter and the whole thing is just a disaster. It starts good with Jonathan. Jonathan was okay. He's the bright spot. But when Saul gets involved, the whole thing just 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 goes crazy. He has no patience at all. Um, there, there's a moment where Saul needs some counsel, and so he, he calls for a priest, and the priest is taking longer than Saul likes, and so Saul just tells the priest, you know, forget about it. I don't care what you have to say. We need to just move right now. Just a man, a, a self-willed man of action. No, no patience. No waiting on God. Uh, you know, just trying things just to see what could happen. And then in verse 47 of chapter 14, it sums up what the next 38 years of, of, of Saul's life is going to be like. It says, so Saul took the kingdom over Israel. Notice those words. Saul took the kingdom. It's no longer given to him, but he took it. And he was going to run with it. And he was going to do it. Now, chapter 15, the chance for redemption. The grace of God. Samuel comes to Saul and he gives him another chance. And he says, okay, Saul, you want to be the king. Here's what you do. I remember, God says, what Amalek, the Amalekites, did to my people Israel when they were just coming into the land. He says, go and smite the Amalekites and take them out completely. Everything. Don't let even an animal live. Wipe out the Amalekites, their king, everything that is of their, their whole existence. Erase it. Take it out. And, and Saul goes into the battle. But Saul gets there and he says, well, this doesn't make sense. Some of these women would make great wives. And some of these animals would make great livestock. And this king would make a great prize and he would make me look really good when I walk through Israel in the streets of wherever, you know, uh, um, Gilead, Gilead with, with him in, in handcuffs. And so I'm going to leave the king alive and, you know, we'll, we'll just do this. And so he leaves some of it alive. And when he comes back from the battle carrying these sheep and these women and, and the king, Samuel meets him. And Saul greets Samuel, and Saul says, Blessed be thou of the Lord. That's Christianese. You know, bless the Lord. You know, man, his heart's so far from God, but now he's in church, so, you know. And, and, and he says, I've obeyed all that the Lord has commanded me to do. And Samuel looked at him, and Samuel said, Then, then what, what, is, what meaneth this bleeding of the sheep and this lowing of the cattle that I hear? He says, Why do I? And who is that? And Samuel Saul says, Well, you know, I mean, I pretty much obeyed. But, you know, some of the choice, these are offerings to the Lord. We're going to sacrifice these. You know, it's, well, this, is, this is good money to give to God. We'll put it in the box at church, you know. And, you know, and this king, and, and Samuel shakes his head at Saul. And he says, you're a fool. He says, you're a fool. You didn't obey all that the Lord. And, and, and he says, obedience is more important than sacrifice. And in that you have rejected the counsel of God, God has also rejected you from being king. And at that point, Saul gets desperate because he doesn't want to lose his position. And so as Samuel turns to walk away, Saul grabs his robe and tears it. And Samuel turns around and quickly says, as you've torn my robe so that God has torn the kingdom away from you and given it to someone who's better than you. And those words stung better than you. And Saul said, honor me now in, the, in front of the people. And Samuel turned around and he did it. And Saul's going to go now on this course that he has started for himself and he is going to become an insane, jealous, threatened persecutor 
self-willed, self-consumed man who will eventually die at the hand of the Amalekites that he let live. The picture of a wasted life. Very much used of God in the whole thing. So as we take all of this and we just look at this man Saul and how he got to be where he was and God's plan and, and having him there in the whole thing, what do we take away from it? What's the application uh, of, all of, the, uh, of all of this to us here this morning? Uh, a couple of things. Num- number one, and this concerns um, the request of Israel for a king <clears throat> when it wasn't yet God's will to give them a king. Listen carefully, men. What you and I need to want for our lives is what God wants for our lives. (laughs) That's what you and I need to want for our lives. He knows us better than we know ourselves. That is absolute. The Bible says he knows the number of hairs on our heads. And if there's anyone in here and you could tell me what that number is, then I will say to you that you know yourself equally as well as God does. But if you don't know that number, then that tells me that God knows you better than you know you. And God knows me better than I know me. And he knows what's best for me. And where my life is in its best position is when the attitude of my heart is, God, you give to me and you do for me what is best for me. I have learned by my stupidness and my experience in my own stupidness that my vanishing point, meaning the distance that I can see into the future, is so close to the front of my face <laughs> that I can't see what's five feet in front of me. My, in my rearview mirror, I can see for miles. But in my windshield, I cannot see the road ten feet in front of me. And therefore, I need one who can to help me get where I'm going. And if along the way I choose to take things into my own hand and say, you know what, God, I don't need what you want for me because I want this for me, then I'm putting myself in a position where I'm going to be a train wreck. I'm going to crash into a tree. He alone can see the future. And not just 10 days into the future. He sees 200 years into the future. And he sees how the things that he's putting into our lives today affect the decades and centuries that are to come. And so for me to say, well, God, I don't like the way that you're doing things or the timing in which you're doing things, and so I'm going to take it into my own hand and do it my way, is utter foolishness. It's utter foolishness for us to uh, take our lives into our own hands. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so therefore, what we need to want is what God wants. That's not easy. It's not easy because we all want things. We all have ambitions, we all have desires, we all have, we all have like this internal clock, well by this time I should be here, and by this time I should have that, and I should, you know, things should be along this far, and all the rest, and listen, let go, let go of it. Put the entire contents of your life in the hands of God, and say, God, whatever you want for me, what you have for me, when you have it, take your hands off the steering wheel. You'll never regret that decision. And on the other hand, if you don't do that, you say, well, God, well, I'll hold this and, and you know, I'll let you stir the wheel as long as it's going kind of in the direction I like. But I reserve the right to yank. Don't do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. You'll regret it. Number two, the characteristics that made Saul the kind of man that he was all the negative things that we saw within his life, those things were not placed in him as the byproduct of his circumstances. But rather, they were already in him and the circumstance revealed that they were there. In other words, it wasn't Saul's you know, um, lack of training and lack of preparation that made him insecure as a leader. Well, if I had been prepared, well, if I had known ahead of time that, that I was going to be in this and I had read some books on being a king, then maybe I would be a little more secure. But because of the suddenness of this, I'm insecure. No, 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 no. He was already insecure. And the circumstance revealed the insecurity that was there. 
Well, I, I don't know how to rule. And so the first thing that came into my head was just to shoot my tractor, you know, and cut these oxen in pieces. It was the, I, you know, it was the expediency of the situation. That's what made me react with anger. No, 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 no. You were already an angry person. And the circumstance brought that anger out of you. Well, if I hadn't had so many people all around me trying to take things from me, I wouldn't be so jealous and, and holding on and, and hoarding the, the authority to myself. No, no, no. You're a jealous person. And that's why that jealousy came out of your life. The things in our lives, men, that are iniquity, that are defiling, they're not caused by the circumstances that we're in. They're revealed by the circumstances that we're in. They're already in us. A man doesn't turn to substances as an ease of his conscience or, or to take the pain away from his life because of the overwhelmingness. Well, things are just too overwhelming in this world. And it's the government's fault. And, and it's my family's fault. And my boss's fault who's laying all this stuff on me. That's why I need to get bombed every night because I can't cope. No, no, no. What that's revealing is that there's already a weakness in you. The weakness is already there. And, and God's revealing it through the circumstances that come. My reaction when my wife says something I don't like or when my kids do something that I don't like and I, I respond quick and, and in a rage, I can either blame them and say, well, you made me do this. You made this reaction come out of me because of what you said to me and because you don't do this. That's not what's going on there. There's an anger problem in me. There's something wrong on the inside of me. There's an impatience in me. And what they did just simply revealed what was already there. See, the root of the problem is what matters, not the symptom. What did Jesus say? He said, it is written, don't commit adultery. But I say unto you, that if you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. In other words, what Jesus was saying is that the adultery is just the byproduct. The issue is lust in the heart. That's the problem. It is written, don't murder, don't kill. But I say, if you're angry, you've already committed murder in your heart. The root of it is the anger. There's something in me that's got to change. And so the circumstances of our life reveal the flaws that are in us. Do you understand? And now I have a choice. I can blame it on someone else or I can deal with what's wrong with me. And the outcome is going to make all the difference in the world. So you say, well, how do I deal with it then? How do I deal with these issues? The same way you deal with all sin. Number one, you repent. You realize what's in. You go, oh God, look at, look at it. And God holds that mirror up and he says to you and I, look at it. And we go, no, it's not me. That's not in me. They're trying to put that in me. That's not in me. I am not that. I am not that man. Yes, you are. Look at it. Let it seethe in your mind to see your own sin. Then pick it up with your hand and say, God, this is what I am. I'm sorry. I repent. I don't want to be this. I am this. They're not making me this. The situation isn't making me this. I am this. God, I'm sorry. That's repentance. Then, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. God, I confess, I am this man. And in the process of repentance, ownership, confession, and asking, God changes us from the inside out. And he begins to deal with the filth. And he can change us. Do you understand? Saul could have changed, but he didn't. He buried it. These things need to be burned out of us. Number three, and there's only four, so don't worry, we're almost done. Number three, to reach the destination of our lives, what God has intended for us, without adequate preparation is far worse 
and harder than the difficulty of the preparation itself. That's exactly what happened to King Saul. He, was, he went from farmer to king in a day. No preparation for it at all. And the outcome was an absolute train wreck within his life. And listen, the preparation that we have to undergo, David's going to go through 15 years of preparation to become the kind of king that God was looking for. 15 years. And that was a hard 15 years. But it's much harder to be a King Saul. He spent 40 years at wearing the crown, which was what he wanted, but he didn't know what he was doing. And he screwed everything up along the way. It isn't the fruit that appears to men in our lives that matters. It's the fruit that remains. Do you understand? Do you understand? Sometimes someone can look at our lives and they can see, wow, he's got a great family and he's got a great house and he's got great this and he's got a great temperament and great disposition. And he's got a lot of gifts and he's got a lot of talent, a lot of things going for him. And we look at it and we say, that's a fruitful life. But that's all fruit, that's, that's all fruit that exists today. That doesn't matter. What matters is, does it remain? Does it last? Is it real? And the preparation of the heart is all the difference. God's preparation of our lives along the way. And then finally is a question, number four as we close. I ask you today, are you a king or are you a kingmaker? Everyone in this room in one, one sense will be one or the other. A kingmaker is someone like Saul, untempered, unseasoned, unsurrendered, unyielded to the proddings of the Spirit of God, untouched by the furnace of affliction that burns off these self-things, self-sufficient, self-centered, self-absorbed, living in an it's-all-about-me an, it's type of mentality. I tell you here this morning that if that's the mark of your life, then the only thing that God will ever use you for in your life is to work in someone else's life, his good purposes and will. That's a kingmaker. That's what they are. You either go through the furnace or you are the furnace. On the other hand, are you here this morning a king? You say yes. You say, I want to be. Listen, for every one of us that desire it, there's a process of pain that has to take place within our hearts, within our lives. Because all of those things that are naturally in us, that are of our flesh, they've got to be burned out. The crooked things need to be made straight. The old man needs to die. And it's a process that hurts. There's pain involved in it. Because you have to come face to face with self and see it for what it is. And then die to it. In Psalm chapter 95, verse 10, God says this. He says, 40 years long, I was grieved with this generation. And I said, it is a people that do err in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I, I believe that there is a whole bunch of Christian people, church-going Christian people, that know a lot of things about God. You know, maybe even, you know, they're, 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 they're involved in different things, but they have no idea about his ways I mean, you look at the difference between the way that Jesus led and the way that someone like Saul led. Saul led by the sword. Jesus led by example. Saul led by pride. Jesus led by humility. The Bible says the Spirit of God speaks through Isaiah and he says this. He says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. They're past finding out. And God wants to teach us his ways. And there's a process of learning it. And it's a process that hurts. It's a process that takes time. But it's so necessary. We need to die to the old man. All right. Um, we see the kingmaker, King Saul. Next week, we'll see how now God has forged this instrument, this wrathful, jealous king. How is he going to use that in the life of David? So we'll finally meet David next week. Uh, and we'll see now how um, God begins to use this instrument, this tool that he has made, this kingmaker, to make David into the king that he would have to be. Would you rather be an example of what not to do 